or to argue in his behalf that he was deranged. Instead, he placed his hopes in the redemptive power of martyrdom. I am ready for my fate, he quietly informed a hushed magistrate's court nine days after his capture. I have been whipped, he wrote his wife, but am sure I can recover all the lost capital occasioned by the disaster by only hanging a few moments by the neck. Such was the grim and oddly rational calculus of a gloomy religious zealot, a man alienated from society and driven by obsession, but by no means insane. For Brown intended to transform his personal misery into a purgative that would convulse the nation and free it from the incubus of slavery. It would be a large role indeed for a sometime farmer, shepherd, tanner, and storekeeper, who had failed at every one of the two dozen occupations he tried, and left a spore of bankruptcies and lawsuits across the Midwest. Even when he fixed upon the grandiose goal of eradicating human chattel slavery, so far he had accomplished little beyond the murder of innocents, first in Kansas and now in Virginia but he was a man driven by the conviction that God had chosen him for a holy mission. Manacled in jail, without a hope left in the world, when an interrogator asked, Do you consider yourself an instrument in the hands of Providence? He replied plainly, I do. The governor, Henry Alexander Wise, insisted on questioning this demon who had dared to violate the borders of the Old Dominion. An incendiary southern partisan, conceited, mercurial, and cranky, Wise impulsively defended his region against northern slights. His long hair and gaunt, angular features had always given him the look of a dangerous man. In fact, in both appearance and in temperament, there was something similar about the governor and the prisoner. Wise approached their meeting angry at what Brown had attempted, and perhaps embarrassed that he had so easily captured the arsenal. He was not prepared for the figure lying there on a bed of rags, a pathetic, defeated criminal who could expect no mercy from his captors. He saw there was nothing passive or defeated about the man. Brown flashed his gray eyes at Wise when the governor suggested he best be thinking of the next life. "'You are not likely to be more than fifteen or twenty years behind me in the journey to eternity,' Brown shot back with calm, uncanny asperity. "'A very trifling distance. And I want you to be prepared. You slaveholders have a heavy responsibility, and it behooves you to prepare more than it does me.' Wise came away frankly expressing respect for Brown. "'He is a bundle of the best nerves I ever saw,' the governor conceded. Even more, the prisoner struck him as cool, collected, and indomitable, and he inspired me with great trust in his integrity as a man of truth. He is a fanatic, vain and garrulous, but firm, truthful, and intelligent.' Despite their differences, Wise recognized an affinity with Brown. Ralph Waldo Emerson called it a bond of union between two enemies. Now, like Brown at his moment of decision at the arsenal, Wise hesitated. 
Perhaps the unlooked-for empathy that he discovered at their meeting gave him pause. He considered locking up Brown in a lunatic asylum, but did not, believing him both sane and courageous. As governor, he could have recommended commutation of the death sentence handed down by the local court. If he had done so, he would certainly have frustrated Brown's wishes. He thereby might even have diverted the course of American history into a different channel. In the end, he gave the prisoner what he desired. He may have suspected that Brown would be proven a better prophet than revolutionary. The prophecy came just before his jailers took him to the place of execution on the crisp morning of December 2nd. At that point, the prisoner handed a guard a scrap of paper bearing his final admonition. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the...